Boxes can be useful items. They can hold things together. It's simpler to deal with lots of stuff when it comes to using a box. You know, if I have a lot of little things and I need to move them to a different room, if I can get them all in a box, I just move the box and everything goes with it rather than having to take all the individual kinds of things. With labels, boxes can be even better because I know that if I want a light bulb and I see a box that's labeled baseball, I'm skipping it all together. I just move on. Categories and labels and boxes have their place. Have you ever been put in one? I don't mean literally like my daughters are where they get a, a cardboard box, something that comes in the mail, baby, and it's like Christmas morning to them. They will play with that and color it and turn it into all kinds of spaceships and trains and everything like that. But rather, maybe when someone gives you one of those, oh, you're one of those kind of looks. And default response, I'll admit, is not very pastoral, so I'm going to just stop there. As one thing or a place where we can kind of get put into boxes, personality quizzes can tend to tend toward this or tend to do this to us. You know, I'm not normally an antagonistic person, or at least I don't think of that I am. But part of our ordination process involved a battery of personality type tests. And it's one of those things that should have taken me probably about three hours. Rather, it took me about six months. And I gave my supervisors a lifetime, a lifetime worth of chip-on-your-shoulderness over this whole idea because I couldn't hack the idea of some outsider telling me about myself off information on a Scantron. The Enneagram can actually be one of the hardest when it comes to this because you're not even labeled with a word. You're given a number. It's like, you're a one, you're an eight. It's like, I can't even be a 1.5. I got to be exactly this. You know, personality tests have their place. And I have certainly learned a lot off of studying them. But, and sometimes a label can even be helpful. You know, if you're talking to a doctor and a doctor hears that you're a diabetic or that you have COPD or something like that, that tells them a lot right away. But sometimes they can cause us to miss the big picture of what's going on, as though we know what an entire Thanksgiving feast tastes like just because we sampled the sweet potatoes. Well, since we're in the finale of our dissolution series so that we can be done with doubt altogether forever, a little bit of sarcasm there, let's see a time when we miss the big picture because of a box and what is there for us. The story, if you've been around uh, Christian circles much, you're going to recognize it. You're going to recognize where I'm probably going with this box thing. But it comes out of Matthew, uh, out of John's Gospel, John 20, uh, verses 20 through 28. Now, this is after Jesus has been crucified, after he has risen from the dead, but before all the disciples have seen this risen Jesus. The story goes like this. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands 
and put my finger into the mark of the nails on my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the door was shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Thomas. One viral tweet, and he's boxed forever as Doubting Thomas. See, un unlike us, fortunately, John tries to give him a fair shake. Tries to give Thomas a chance. Gives him a bigger picture than just that one moment. We read about him in John 10 and 11, about the middle of the gospel, where there's a little bit of, little bit of context to this story that's going on in John 10. Jesus has just pulled a Houdini on the Pharisees before they tried to stone him. In John 10, he had claimed to be God. They were like, hey, look, just tell us straight up if you are the Messiah or not. And he, Jesus, claimed to be God in front of them. Well, they didn't like that answer very much. And so they're ready to, to stone him and he bails out of there. Now, a little bit later, Lazarus, his good friend, dies. And in order to visit uh, his, his sisters, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, Jesus has to go back into the lion's den, where those Pharisees are that had those stones ready to kill him. And who rallies the disciples to stay behind, to stay by Jesus and at his side? It's not the person you might think. You might think it would be Mr. Speak First, Think Later, Peter. But it's not. It's Thomas. We see it in John eleven sixteen 16, when he says this, Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So Thomas is looking at it like, All right, I guess this is where we end. He's no wimp or fair-weather disciple. He's as bold as Peter, and he's as faithful as John. But since I'm comparing him to Peter here, or putting them side by side, let's see another section of John. Now, Jesus has just predicted uh, Peter's denial that's going to happen as the crucifixion story is going on in Holy Week. And he's trying to offer comfort with these words in John uh, 14, verses 3 through 4. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Now, I had this chemistry professor in my undergrad studies at Illinois State, and he was a smart guy. He had a PhD in chemistry, so obviously he's got some brain power going on. But there's a big difference between being smart and knowing how to teach. And there was some concept, I remember a lot of concepts. I didn't end up taking a whole lot of chemistry after this. He explained some concept, and he's like, look out to the lecture hall. Okay, everybody understand? And everybody sort of looks around like, who's going to raise their hand? Who's going to ask the question? You know, 200 students are hoping somebody will, because the fact is, none of us understood. And we're looking for the one person who's brave enough to say, yeah, professor, that made no sense at all. Well, enter into that situation, not Peter, the spokesman of the group, if you will, but again, Thomas. In John 14, 5, he responds to Jesus with this. 
Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? See, Thomas isn't playing dumb here like he, he doesn't have a clue. He's asking the question that they all wish they were brave enough to ask. Jesus, we don't get it. Spell it out for us. Where are you going? How do we get there with you? So let's take this back now to his pinnacle moment where uh, he is with the disciples, where Thomas is with the other disciples. And the disciples that say to Thomas, we have seen the risen Jesus. Now, for whatever reason, Thomas wasn't there. We don't know why. Maybe he's was, maybe he needed to be renamed um, Tardy Thomas. Maybe he was the one brave enough to go out into the community and get food for the disciples. And that just happened to be the moment that Jesus came. We don't know. But he responds to this claim that we've seen the disciples. He says, unless I see, I won't believe. And Thomas takes a bad rap for that moment. But let's be honest. Swap in any other disciple, swap in really any other person, they're saying the exact same thing. Swap any of us into Thomas's spot. You know what? We're saying the exact same thing. And look at how it plays out in another resurrection. We have seen the Lord resurrection story in Luke 24. Uh, this is verses 9 through 11. And returning from the tomb, they, the women, told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So here's the fact. They were all told that Jesus is risen. And they didn't believe the messengers. Peter didn't. James didn't. John didn't. All of them at some point were told by somebody. Because Jesus appeared to the women first. And the women come and tell the guys, and none of them, are, none of them believe. They wanted the evidence for themselves, so they ran to the empty tomb. Almost like, until I see the empty tomb for myself, I will not believe. Thomas asked for the same evidence, which the others had gotten, by the way. They had already seen, hey, Jesus came the first time. Thomas just didn't happen to be there. And he breathed on them and gave them their commissioning as apostles. Peter just wanted that same evidence that they already got. So how does Jesus respond to Thomas's need for that evidence? He shows up. He knows that to be commissioned as the others were, Thomas had to witness the resurrection. He had to see it with his own eyes. So Jesus shows up. We see it in John 20 verses 26 and 27. Parts of them, at least, they go like this. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. You ever think when you read this, and, and kind of the sequence of how it goes, how did Jesus know what Thomas wanted to see? I mean, Jesus wasn't there when Thomas was saying, unless I put my finger in, your, in his wounds and my hand on his side and all that. I mean, did he just sort of meet up with Peter, James, and John at, at a, another time and sort of hear the Thomas gossip? I don't know. But he knew. And he gave him the invite. Comes into all of them says, Peace be with you. And then goes to Thomas and says, I hear this is what you need. Here you go. 
Here's your opportunity. Here's my hands. Here's my feet. Here's my side. Touch. Experience it. See that it's for real. Thomas doesn't even need to take him up on it. No fingers, no hands, no, just a drop jaw. He says in verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. See, here's the thing. That has been the theme of John's writing for the entire gospel, that Jesus is God. If you study each of the gospel writers, they each have a certain angle of who Jesus is that they're trying to to capture and to paint a picture of. And Jesus as God is John's angle that he's taking. And he builds 21 chapters of writing, really to this point. Yes, this is happening in chapter 21, or in chapter 20, but chapter 21 is kind of a tie up the loose ends part. And one writer says that the most this is the most powerful expression of faith in any of the gospel accounts. So how would it sit with you? How does it sit with you that the climax of John's gospel, the most powerful expression of faith, comes from the man with the greatest doubt? Or more importantly, what does it, say, what does it tell you about the Jesus who met that doubt? Bringing this back to our time here, John or Jesus continues in verse twenty, uh, verse twenty nine. Jesus said to him, "Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have come to believe." Now, considering John's epilogue, where he goes in the rest of chapter twenty, where he says, "You know, we uh, there, Jesus did so many more signs than are cataloged in this writing." It's almost like John is sort of breaking the fourth wall, as actors say, and speaking directly to the reader rather than just documenting what's going on. I believe that idea counts for us today. Blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. People that believe even though we don't see. So let me ask you this. What would it take for you to believe that Jesus is with you in this season? Whatever this season looks like for you, What would it take for you to believe that he has a plan with your ultimate best in mind? That he doesn't relate to you on the basis of the thing you're most ashamed about? Ask him to meet you in that struggle. I mean, before accepting Christ into my life uh, in my freshman year of my undergrad, my last stand uh, against Christianity, if you will, was a Thomas moment. I remember sitting on my roommate's bunk or on his bed and the director of Campus Crusade was sitting on my bed and we're looking at each other and I told him, I I can't see it. I can't touch it. Therefore, I struggle to believe. Now, did Jesus meet me in a blinding revelation like he did with Paul? No. Did he call me out like he did Thomas to touch his wounds and believe? No. But he showed me the effects of that very resurrection in the changed lives of people around me. Rick and Fitz and Andy and Aaron and Steve and Darren. He met me in my doubts in a way far more effective than I would have thought to bring me to a place of hope found in him. And you know what? He offers the same to you. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for loving us enough to meet us in our doubts. 
to show us the evidence in changed lives of who you are and that your resurrection makes a difference today. Help us to have the courage to come before you in our imperfections, in our doubts, in our questionings, and allow that to deepen our faith, that we, like Thomas, might acknowledge you as my Lord and my God. All this we pray in your name. Amen.